0: So, I want to invite Chris Vogel up to share God's word with us today. Chris is married to Janet. They have three grown children married. Uh, One is a pastor in Wisconsin, one lives in Houston, one, his daughter, is married to an associate pastor in Cleveland, Tennessee. Chris and Janet planted Cornerstone Church in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Thirty-five years ago, pastor for 26 years started the on, helped start the On Wisconsin Church Planting Network that planted a host of churches and started their own presbytery. And uh, has been involved in a you know a training workshop for pastors called Next Gen that he started and now he's on staff with MA in the role of coordinator for church planting and vitality, meaning the multiplication of new gospel preaching churches, as well as the ongoing health and vitality of local churches. So Jeremy and I have been very encouraged by uh, Chris over the last couple of few years. Well, Jeremy knew him when he was in seminary, and uh, then the, the officers were able to spend some time with him Friday and Saturday. So, um, Chris, very thankful for your encouragement, your heart, and your wisdom that you've shared with us this weekend, and thanks for coming to preach for us today.
1: It is indeed a honor and privilege to be here with you all, and the opportunity to be with your elders and deacons yesterday and with, with many of you in Sunday school at the, at the first hour. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And as you turn there and before the reading of the word, just want to... Uh, by way of introduction, let start off by, by saying you, you may have heard the phrase, past performance is no indicator of future success. It might be on a mutual fund prospectus, an investment disclosure, it's true of all of life, parenting success with a four-year-old, if that ever does happen, is never a guarantee of success with a 14-year-old. Acing the test early in the semester doesn't mean you won't have a problem on the final. Making your boss happy on Monday does not give you a pass on Friday. The same is true in sports. It was true in uh, Beijing at the 2008 Olympics when U.S. track and field had a reminder of that. You see, the U.S. track and field for 100 years dominated the 4 by 100 meter relay. They set world records 17 times, they won gold 15 times, and at 2008 approach, they wanted to bring gold home one more time, so they, have, they formed an elite relay team. They got the best of the best. And all was going smoothly for the U.S. through the first two legs, but when Doc Patton went to, uh, was closing in on Tyson Gay and to hand him the baton, they just couldn't seem to connect. Patton made that final lunge before he was leaving the zone in which he could pass the baton, but as Gay's hand closed, the baton wasn't in it, and the baton bounced off the rain slicking track. The crowd gasped. What happened? Well, Carl Lewis, who himself won two Olympic golds in prior Olympics, had been a longtime critic of the way the US track and field does its relays, he pointed out all the problems, the fighting among staff and volunteers, agents, administration, what have you. But there was another problem that was pointed out, it was the runners themselves. See, they were all the best. Well, why would that be a problem? Well, in a relay race, your fastest runner runs the last leg, he brings it home. Well, they had all fourth leg runners. There's a problem. The fourth leg runner knows how to receive the baton, but is never really trained in passing the baton. And hence the problem. Our passage this morning comes from Paul's final letter, Second Timothy. Paul is languishing in a Roman jail, abandoned, awaiting execution. And in that time, he pens this letter to his protege, Timothy. He's giving the final instructions. He is passing the baton to the next generation. At the core of these instructions is not just handing off the gospel commission to Timothy, but as we will see, he is instructing Timothy to be about the same task, passing the baton to ensuing generations. And as we hear this, as we look at it, this is not just sage advice for clergy, for pastors, or other officers of the church. It's written for all of us to take to heart these truths. So here now, God's word, Second Timothy chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's a hard-working farmer who ought to have the share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. To you, our oh God, we ask that you would be with us as your word is open, that our hearts and our minds would be open to not only hearing it, receiving it, but responding to it in faithful obedience, so that the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So, Scripture calls us as we are going to be looking at, at this truth to pass the baton. And, and as we're going to see here, it is uh, something that unfortunately few of us are, are often not trained to do. We, we spend a lot of time, if we have been part of a church, being disciple. We sit under sound teaching and preaching, and that is right and proper. But how often are we really encouraged and instructed, as scripture does here, to pass it on to someone else? And not just a peer, but an ensuing generation. So in our passage, we hear this, com- com- uh, this commission to pass the baton. And our race is not just 100 meters in length, it is a lifetime, and the runner that we are passing it to is the next generation. And so we're gonna see here that we are indeed empowered by God's grace for the next generation. We are to entrust the gospel to the next generation. We are to engage in suffering for the next generation. So here in verse one, we are empowered by God's grace for the next generation. See what Paul says, you then my child, Paul language illustrates the, the, his, his commitment to the long haul of the gospel from generation to generation using this, the familial language we see elsewhere where he refers to Timothy as his son there. He starts off in the same way in chapter 1, verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved child. And likewise, if you look down in, in verse 3, where Paul says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. and and then brings out more in verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice. We see it again built out in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where he talks about this generational aspect of the Christian faith being passed on. We often refer to the the importance of, of covenant families from generation to generation. We see how God works, and we're reminded of it here. And so... Paul is challenging Timothy, this this empowerment of the gospel has been been on the move from generation to generation, but notice what he says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, be strengthened. Paul challenges Timothy to be empowered or strengthened here. This is the first of three commands we're going to be looking at here kind of wonder and has often been speculated as Paul is reminding Timothy of this, this is not perhaps Timothy's natural state. Sometimes he's been referred to as timid Timothy. You know, He, he, he may be shy, uh, be a little bit more shy and, and reticent. And it's interesting where Paul says to you, um, to my child, be strengthened by the grace. When you, when you tell someone that is a bit more anxious or reticent to be strengthened it it, it could be somewhat like someone telling me I I need to to be a, a male model you know some of you laughed I find offense at that it's just not in our purview but what is he doing here Well, He's doing, for Timothy, what we need to do for each other, pointing to where our hope is found. See, this this comes up earlier, up in chapter one and verse six and seven, where Paul says to Timothy, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is is in you through the laying on of hands, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Fanned into flame. the understanding there is, we, we, we look for this great fire, but for a lot of us, it's a flickering wick, it's a, just some sparks, and it's gonna take something more than what we can do ourselves, by ourselves, to have it ignite into something more powerful. And so much so, he says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, so the understanding is, I wonder how much Timothy was afraid, you know, if you're Spiritual father, your mentor, your guide, is writing you soon facing death for the proclamation of the gospel. What does your life have before you? So those thoughts may have gone through Timothy's mind, but he said it's not a spirit of, of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and self control. That word power is the same root that we see in chapter 2, verse 1 be strengthened, be empowered. That's there. Now, again, we live in a time, in a place in which there are a lot of us have a degree, great or small, of anxiety. We're seeing it especially, and was speaking with one of you after the Sunday school class, of the, the trend that has been documented, in, and not just in churches among uh, potential uh, young Christian leaders, but also in business and the military, a heightened sense of anxiety with the upcoming generation and the fear. The anxiety over leadership. And so these words remain for us. Now, what Paul is saying, be strengthened. Now, Paul is not just taking this approach of being resolute and unshakable. He's not the drill sergeant that just says, get with it, you know, do the job, man, stop complaining. He points us to the place where our faith is to be, strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We see this first picture, the first opening of the gospel, the gospel connection here. The starting point when discussing how we are to move from one generation to the next, especially when we are are concerned and fearful of what is gonna come down the pike and where the world is going and what will the next generation do, to be able to stop and say, listen, we can't do it ourselves, but Christ comes to us with grace that understanding it is not within us, but because of his death in our place, but also his righteous life given to us. We'll see how that works out in this whole context, that, that, that we can do this work not by our power, but because of his death and resurrection for us. It's very much what he says up in chapter 1, verse 9 when he says he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That is our our foundation from which we move forward. So what does this mean then, how we're to raise up the next leaders? And again, not talking just the quote-unquote professionals, the ordained clergy here. It's true for all of us. It's true for how we speak and act with anyone who is, if you will, younger than us. Maybe your children, your grandchildren. If you're a grandchild, you know, younger, you're a generation below you. No matter how old you are, how do you speak and encourage them See, our, uh, this race does not just begin as someone says, I feel called to, to the ministry or Christian service, and off they go to seminary, to, to the foreign mission fields. It happens right now. In fact, you know, studies have shown that uh, it was, was a survey done in 2015 of, pro, of Protestant pastors across the board. Over 50% of them sensed a call to ministry. Over 50% sense of call to ministry between the ages of 14 and 21. So I dare say, in a congregation like this, there may well be that young man or woman, high school student, college student. Let's begin to think what about ministry? And if you're thinking that, you know, talk to Jeremy, to Bill, one of the elders, to your folks, and begin to consider what that means because you are. The next generation. We're not waiting until you finish college and, and then think, oh, in your mid-20s or 30s, maybe then I'll, I'll do seminary. No. There's an opportunity in, in raising up the next generation that really begins now. See, what is that issue here is indeed an issue of the heart. and We want to be able to to speak and encourage everyone, men and women, as they come to these stages of life to say, what does it mean to serve here in Tupelo, Mississippi, somewhere in the U.S., somewhere in the world? You know, we have almost a generation ago seen the turn in which America is no longer the primary mission-sending agency, but we are one of the greatest mission-receiving places in the world. More missionaries come here from other countries to share the gospel with us than we send elsewhere in the world. Well... That's an opportunity for us to consider what is it going to mean, how we are gonna be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus, ourselves, calling from one generation to the next for that ongoing resilience that is necessary, finding our help and our hope in Christ's death and resurrection for us. So we are empowered by God's grace for the next generation. We can only do that because of what Christ has done in suffering and dying for us, and we need now to step into that, despite the fear that we have, but finding the strength not within ourselves, but in the gospel itself, in the presence of Christ in our lives. But then secondly, we are to entrust the gospel to the next generation. It's not just enough to be empowered by grace, but we now have to pass the baton. Verse two. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Here we see Paul move from encouraging Timothy in his own life to passing the baton to the next generation, to Paul's grandchildren, if you will, great-grandchildren in the faith. It's not enough just to preserve the truth, but he says there, if you notice, he is to entrust to faithful men, will be able to teach others also this word entrust comes up earlier again in in chapter when you look up 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 at verse 12 notice what paul says but i am not ashamed for i know whom i have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me see paul was entrusted with the gospel and then he's passing it on you know, you, you think here that sense of, of guarding the gospel, but that which has been entrusted to us. And it's easy to kind of picture it like, well, we're going to keep it safe. We're going to hold it close. That's not the picture that Paul has here. If you want to use a sports analogy, he is not just a quarterback that's going to keep running the ball, just passing it to running back. He's going to pass it, which is dangerous. You might not make it. But how important it is, I, a couple uh, about two years ago, I uh, was down to the RTS Orlando campus, and there, a, a new student was uh, asked to come up and share during, during the lunch hour. His name was James, or is James Carpenter. He's an offensive lineman with uh, the Seahawks and has a Super Bowl ring to show for it in 2013. He, uh, he played in a SEC in another state, Alabama. Um, but uh, he was asked, you know, okay, as offensive lineman, who's your favorite quarterback? And he said, anyone that passes the ball fast. Because <laughs> his job is done. He won't get trampled. That sense of passing it is what's really important. And what's amazing here in our passage, this, this entrusting the gospel is not just to Timothy, but to Timothy who will continue the process. And that is our calling today. We are about... Our task is really what we would call apostolic succession. Not in the way in some traditions that go from one man to the next. No, it's from one believer to the next generation in which we pass on the truths of what we receive from Christ through the apostles, the gospel itself. It's a chain, not of church authority, but being passed on. Paul starts here. It, it starts with Paul. It moves to Timothy. It, Goes beyond that, and notice the communal element of this process of, of the communal element of discipleship. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. The sense of, of of passing the baton is not a private event. Now, in the ancient world, if um, the more important the knowledge was, the more secret it was, which also meant the more money it would cost you. You had to bet. You had to pay to get the right knowledge. Now, it's really true in our world today, is it not? I, I had to chuckle as I came into the sanctuary here and the, all the flags of the world, and behind me, the flags of, <laughs> of old Miss and Mississippi State. One's missing, I was told, Southern Miss, but that's that's a whole another issue. You know, let's just say tomorrow I want, you know, all the wisdom, University of and I drive up to Oxford tomorrow and I, I go into, into the classroom and sit down in the class and you know taking notes and listen to the lecture. No doubt they students might kind of turn their heads. Who who's the old guy? Who's, whose grandfather is that sitting in the back room? The professor would say, What are you doing here? Have you matriculated? Are you a student? No. Well, knowledge should be free. Well, it's not. You gotta pay. Well the gospel it is free it's not the way the we don't operate in the same context of the world we indeed are about we have nothing to hide it's not just for insiders although discipleship may be that one-to-one engagement for the transference is in public and it's open for all to see and hear and have their lives changed see our vision is not just a reminder for the next runner it's just if you put it in the, in the parenting analogy, if you're a parent of a, of a young child, your goal is not just for a well-behaved six-year-old, lofty goal as that might be. Your goal with your six-year-old is to train them to be a father of a six-year-old. Now the task becomes totally impossible. Can you imagine trying to instruct a six-year-old how to parent a six-year-old? Well, that's what we're called to do, to have that kind of mindset at play. It's not just in the context of the church to, to, to share the gospel, so people, people come to faith and disciple them so that they become well-behaved church members. No, the goal is that they multiply, that they share their faith with others as well. It's been very much a part and parcel of, of, of my calling in, in so many ways. As, as Bill shared, my Uh, When when my daughter was born, we kind of, and I mean we jokingly said, Honey, you're going to be a pastor's wife because you run things, and she does, she she, she runs things well. But it was always a joke until she met Sam and went, Well, here we go, it's a pastor's wife. Youngest son uh, at the age of five since the call to ministry. One of us, one of his parents tried to discourage it. She, who will go nameless, uh, just realized "Eh, it's not an easy life. But it was amazing to see God at work. But likewise, throughout the context of ministry, always seeking who that next generation will be. And that's very much what what Next Gen Pastors was about, it was teaching and leading and discipling, mentoring what we call soft skills, because it's not just getting our pastors academically trained as, as important, as critical as that is, it's helping them also understand how to lead, how to understand the cultures in which, the culture that's in them in which they are residing, how do they understand themselves emotionally and communicate that to others, care for themselves spiritually, self-stewardship. We're entrusting a lot when we say entrust the gospel, dealing with the whole person. And so, empowered by the grace for the next generation, do we entrust the gospel for the next generation. And finally, we engage in suffering for the next generation. Now, up until this point, what I'm saying can sound really nice and encouraging, and i Go out there and, and disciple others so that, that they would, would also know the joy of Christ. Well, notice what Paul wants us to know about this apostolic succession. It's not such a simple task. In verse three, this is what it looks like. Share in suffering. Share in suffering as a good soldier. Share in suffering. You know, the reason we all need to be empowered by God's grace to entrust the gospel is this proce- This whole process is always in the context of hardship. We, we can't, we shouldn't, we mustn't sell the gospel, if you will, with a life of ease and everything becomes nice and perfect once you look to Christ. You're given a context in which to process and live it out. And we need to train generation after generation not to expect everything to get rosy and sunny. God, by his grace, may give and often does give such blessings and benefits, but never be surprised with the hardships. Our calling as Christians in general and servants of Christ and whatever calling we may have is not one of ease and comfort. Our greatest need is not merely the acquisition of truth nor making the world a nicer place in which to live. It's what Paul says up in chapter 1, verse 8, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor, me of, him, uh, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You know, that whole process is so important. It was Martin Luther who said that a religion that costs nothing, that suffers nothing, is worth nothing. To make this point, Paul engages in, in three metaphors. Share suffering as a good soldier, he describes that, verse five, as an athlete, and then verse six, as a hard-working farmer. Now, the, the benefit of metaphors is to help you make the connection because you can associate with them. And I always found it interesting, these three metaphors, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer, uh, just given who I am, they don't always resonate. I came of age in the late 60s, early 70s in which soldiering at that point was not valued as it is and probably so today. And I also grew up in a context, although not among this tradition, I grew up in Lancaster County, uh, Amish and Mennonite who are pacifists, so this idea of soldiering, that was not part of the the culture, if, if you will. The next one, the athlete. You know, it, 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 that wasn't my, my first first thing. Um, I, I, and actually, you know, I, I, was, I was a student until I was oh, about 32, going through college and then seminary and then going on five years for a PhD. So I, I, it's kind of a, of a joke, so much so one of the, uh, and this is like understanding the, the hardworking farmer. Uh, there was a deacon in, in my church. He was a drywaller and just did this great job. Well, he would joke with me and and my associate, he he, he would shake our hands and go, oh, they're so smooth. Uh, So much, he he called us kiddie softpaws, you know? Now, he didn't realize, I got a paper cut the other day and that stung really bad. I spend my life in books and, and writing and such. So I look at this and I go, okay, what do you mean? Well, let's take these apart. Verse three, the good soldier. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. There's a single-minded devotion when it comes to a military personnel. Imagine the soldier who complains about his living conditions. He doesn't like loud noises, and please stop telling me what to do. I can think for myself. That's not a good soldier. In fact, the image of a soldier suggests some awesome Qualities, a proverbial obedience, a deep loyalty. The, the story of the famous French general in World War I, Marshal Foch, who once when commanding one of his officers told him, you must not retreat. You must hold at all costs. To which the officer replied, well, that will mean we all die. And Foch said precisely, and he obeyed the order. That is hard suffering. And the battle in which we are engaged means we must understand the cost. But with single minded devotion, unflagging loyalty, join in the sacrifice. The, the image of the first responders in 9 11 rushing up the stairs, case in the World Trade Center as everyone's fleeing for their life. Count the cost, single minded devotion. Interestingly, um, certainly after Paul's time, but, but during that period, there was a, a Roman code for the military called the Code of Theodosius, in which the Code of Theodosius said, We forbid men to engage in military service to engage in civilian occupations. So, so no, not National Guard or reservists, you know, they, they were full time soldiers. Now, that did not mean they pulled out of the community, they were just focused on what their job was in the community as military, single-minded. The second one there that's listed is that of the athlete. An athlete does not crown unless he competes according to the rules. Again, there are perhaps many reasons. I'm not an NBA superstar. Um, the primary reason, okay, height is probably one of them, but it's also discipline, practice. The Athlete engages in rigorous exercise. When I was 10 and 11, we had a basketball court out in the yard, and, and you know, as any 10 or 11 year old is, I can do this, you know, and had my my own heroes at the time, and and uh, would sit and do three free throws and try to to, to do a layup, and at 10 and a full size, it just doesn't work real well, and I lost interest and pursued other things. Wasn't the, that sense of, of discipline? Well, that sense of hard work here is extremely important. And as it says, you don't even get a crown unless you compete according to the rules. The, the, the rules in Paul's day to win a crown in the Olympiad or in the Ithmian games, um, they, they had a, a requirement. You had to show and verify that you spent at least 10 months in full-time training. Now, most Olympians go, 10 months? I wish it was that easy. But still, you you couldn't sign up, you couldn't participate, no matter how good you were, unless you followed the rules. 10 months of training. And April, uh, April 21st, 1980, uh, a woman named Rosie Ruiz crossed the finish line of the Boston Marathon with, with a record time, two hours, 31 minutes, 56 seconds. It was the fastest run ever. For a woman, however, submis- uh, suspicions quickly mounted regarding uh, Ruez's almost from the beginning. Uh, the men's winner, Bill Rogers, who had won the uh, came in first three times in Boston through the years, noticed that Ruiz just couldn't recall many things that most runners did know—the intervals and splits. Other observers noticed that Ruiz was not panting; she wasn't coated in sweat, and her body wasn't quite that lean and muscular physique of a long-distance runner. The reason was simple. She started the race, jumped on a subway, spent a couple hours waiting it out, and at the last moment, came out of the subway and crossed the finish line. Now, I wanna be honest with you, if I'm gonna run a marathon, that's my kind of marathon. But it's also cheating. She broke the rules. she suffered, she refused to, the hardship, the training, and was stripped of her prize. It's really what we're called to be and to do. With the context of suffering, the attempt to avoid it or situation that might lead it, it's really a breach of the rules. The third metaphor there is that of the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. You know, of all the three, the farmer has the least notoriety. There's no victory parade, no winner's platform as there is for the athlete. For the farmer, there's toil, time, hard work. They receive the benefits of the soil, what they put into it. We're reminded of that hard work, the striving, the patiently enduring nature of farming is really what we're about. No easy answers. You want to reach Tupelo? That is tremendous. Is it going to be easy? No, it's not. Is it necessary? It certainly is. Now, what do we do with all of this? We see in verse seven, we're called to reflect on these truths. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, part of me gets a little annoyed with those kinds of instru- instructions. <laughs> He's saying, go think about this, and you'll know what to do. I'm the kind of person, I, I want an answer, just give me, a, give me three points. Go, go do this, and, and, and Jesus will love you more and that short-circuiting discipleship. Think about what this means for you. Pay attention to what is said. Connect the dots. Because false teaching will say you should be free of suffering. And I'm easily beckoned to a life of ease. You know, having this point in life, putting in 40 years and, and gospel ministering in various forms and coming to that place in which culturally you know I can say just in a short while I can kick back and let my investments take me from there and for me and my calling no the sense is there is much more work to be done there are batons to be passed because there are batons being dropped all the time no, the reality in all of this is we are—we might think we're, we're coming to the last leg of the race, but there are many more laps to go. And that baton has to be passed before we're done. And how are we going to do it? While past performance is no guarantee of future success in our lives, what Jesus did for us in his life is the core and is the answer. It's kind of where we started, the grace that is in Christ Jesus really is the answer. You know, another, this passage reminds me of another one of Hebrews chapter 12, where the author of Hebrews says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, it kind of reminds me of that, teach this in the presence of others, that they teach You know, faithful men, faithful women. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so clings closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How are we going to do that? Verse two: Looking to Jesus, the author and um, I'm sorry, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We have a race before us. The good news is, our elder brother, our savior, the son of God, has run the race. And we are looking to him. He is the the founder, the author, the foundation, the initiator of this. He's also the perfecter of it. It's not in your power to do it. He's done it. Your call is to look to him and trusting His grace to have you to do it. And so when you are weary and tired and say, I just don't know who does disciple, people don't listen, to stop and seek his face, to consider the things that Paul says here and go, where am I to go, Lord Jesus? What am I to do for the future? The good news of the gospel is that there is more grace than you ever realize for you and for me it's not just in the obviously in the truths of what we proclaim each and every Lord's Day morning it's found here before you any good athlete is going to eat well as well as train this is eating well it's looking to Christ his death for us his righteousness covering us his body broken his blood shed And so as we come to the table and consider these truths, finding the strength and the help that we need, not in us, but in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. To our gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this, your word, for the encouragement in it that we would indeed live in light the truth of the gospel, that through it you would strengthen, nourish, and use us as we move from here into the world in which you've placed us, to be the beacons of light of the gospel. And all for your glory we pray. In Christ's name, amen.